This is Confessions of a Closet Romantic, a podcast where I celebrate my love of romantic movies, TV shows, books, and talk in detail about why I love them so much, without embarrassment or shame, mostly. This is Poppy, and in this episode, Intimate Romantic Worlds, You've Got Mail and Love Lettering. Some romantic stories create worlds I never want to leave. I'm thinking of the always will be fabulous rom-com You've Got Mail, which is based on the 1940 movie The Shop Around the Corner, which is fantastic if you haven't seen it, which is also based on a 20th century Hungarian play. Basically, the story is enemies to lovers, with a slow burn internal reveal about two shop assistants, a man and a woman, who grate on each other in real life and don't realize they're falling in love as secret correspondents. In the original movie, it's letters answering a Lonely Hearts ad and then emails IMs after they meet in a chat room. If you haven't seen You've Got Mail, well, I'm trying not to judge you. Come on. Try to fix that right away, because it's such a classic, a clever, romantic movie. And Tom Hanks slash Meg Ryan in anything are an automatic press play in my book. It's a movie about a woman who's inherited a children's bookshop from her late mother. Keeping the shop going is her way of honoring her memory. And along with the oh, so dear and quirky staff, it's pretty much her whole world emotionally. She dates a self-involved writer and lives a careful, predictable life until she meets a man in a chat room online. Despite being involved with other people, they start an online relationship that's extremely fulfilling for both of them. They share very few personal details, so little does she know that he's a rival in the book business in New York City trying to squeeze out the competition. What is going on? Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. You know, I, I am just going to stand here until you tell me. All right. Is it infidelity if you're involved with someone on email? Have you had sex? No, of course not. I don't even know him. No, I mean cyber sex. No. Well, no, don't do it. The minute you do, they lose all respect for you. Mm. Well, it's not like that. We just email. It's really nothing. On top of which, I am definitely thinking about stopping because it's getting out of hand. Uh, confusing. But not because it's nothing. Where'd you meet him? Oh, listen, I can't even remember. On my birthday, I wandered into the over 30 room for a joke, sort of, and uh, he was there, and we started chatting. About what? Oh, books and music, how much we both love New York, harmless, harmless, meaningless bouquets of sharpened pencils. Oh, excuse me. Forget it. We don't talk about anything personal, so I don't know his name or what he does or where he lives exactly, so... It'll be really easy for me to stop seeing him because I'm not. 
God, he could be the next person to walk into the store. I know. He could be... George. Morning. Are you online? Well, as far as I'm concerned, the internet is just another way of being rejected by a woman. Good morning. Good morning, Bertie. What are you girls talking about? Cyber sex. I tried to have cyber sex once, but I kept getting a busy signal. I know. I know. I was really depressed one Saturday night. It's like, instead of him being grumpy to everyone but her, oh, how I love that trope and what it reveals about reluctant romantic feelings. But instead, he's charming with everyone and toward her in email except not in real life, at least in the beginning. It all ratchets up the tension. Okay, then they decide to meet. Dum, dum, dum. Okay, Cafe Lava, this is it. Eight o'clock, boy, we got here fast, didn't we? Yep. Kevin, this woman is the most adorable creature I've ever been in contact with. And if she turns out even to be as good looking as a mailbox, I'd be crazy not to turn my life upside down and marry her. So what happened? He never came. He stood you up. I wouldn't exactly characterize it in that way. I think something happened, something terrible and unexpected that made it impossible for him to... What if he showed up, he took one look at me and left? Not possible. Maybe there was a subway accident. Absolutely. A train got trapped underground with him inside. And no phone. And you know how those express trains create suction? He got sucked onto the tracks. The third rail. He's toast. What happened? He was unable to make it. He stood you up? Maybe. He had a car accident. Those cab drivers are maniacs. Yeah, you know, they hit something and you slam into that plastic partition. Or, or his elbows could be in splints, so he couldn't really dial. Or he could be unconscious. In a coma. Oh. Stuck in intensive care. With that heart monitor beeping. And, like, no, no phone. Since a lot of the action is set against this charming bookshop, the world it creates is very intimate. I mean, this bookshop. Well, uh, if you've seen the movie, you know how charming it looks. For me, bookshops have always been special, revered places. A refuge and life-size container of possibility. And oh, the possibilities in this setup. The big appeal of this story for me is that close, heartfelt, private world where true, vulnerable things are said. I mentioned in a recent episode that my ex-husband and I met as pen pals. Gee, I wonder why I love this movie. But typical of romance plots, their worlds enlarge as they fall in love with each other. When Joe doesn't exactly show up for their meeting. I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it. This is what he says to her. Dear friend, I cannot tell you what happened last night. 
But I beg you, from the bottom of my heart, to forgive me for not being there. For what happened. I feel terrible that you found yourself in a situation that caused you additional pain. But I'm absolutely sure that whatever you said last night was provoked, even deserved. And everyone says things they regret when they're worried or stressed. You were expecting to see someone you trusted and met the enemy instead. The fault is mine. Someday I'll explain everything. Meanwhile, I'm still here. Talk to me. Did, did, did he say anything about wanting to meet you again? No, no, not really. Listen, it doesn't matter. We'll just be like George Bernard Shaw and Mrs. Patrick Campbell. We'll write letters our whole lives. If you haven't seen it, don't worry. This is the happiest of happy ever afters, cemented with a final scene accompanied by Over the Rainbow. How can anything be sad when it's accompanied by Over the Rainbow? It reminds me of a book that I have absolutely fallen in love with. It has put a glow on my soul. When I finished it, I had the biggest book hangover It was so bad that I opened it back up to chapter one and started it all over again. Love Lettering by Kate Claiborne is one of those books that creates an intimate world of clever words and observations and characters that I never want to leave. It's about a sharp but kind-hearted wedding calligrapher at a high-end Brooklyn stationery shop. Ah, stationery shop! Okay, she wears tights and flats and dresses with Hello Kitty faces. Can't you just picture her? She's got frizzy hair, too. I mean, yeah. She's a frustrated artist and singleton who resolves to get out of the gooey and temperamental wedding business, but not before Reed, the fiancé of her last bride-to-be, comes into the shop a year later with a question she has always anticipated and dreaded. I think my shoulders sag. I am truly terrible at confrontation, though this man with his blank, handsome face seems unusually capable of making me at least want to try getting better. He clears his throat. He has fair skin, an aesthetic match for the ruddy tone in the dark blonde of his hair, and part of me hopes he flushes in shame or embarrassment, some physical reaction that would remind me of what I'd seen in him all those months ago. Something that would remind me he's not a man-sized thundercloud, come to monsoon on the rainy disposition I already felt taking hold before he walked in here. But his complexion stays even. I could have been wrong that day, thinking he was lost or sad. 
It could be that he's just a smug, stick-up-his-ass drone. Thinking of him this way, I wished it made me feel better about what I did. But it doesn't. Not really. It was so... It was so presumptuous, so unprofessional. But I'm all out of patience now, no matter the error I made, especially since he doesn't even know about it. I may not be good with confrontation, but I am exceedingly, expertly good at avoiding it. I can paste on a smile and finish this shift for Cecilia and get him out of here, back to whatever doorman-guarded high-rise he lives in with his fancy wife who never has ketchup stains on her clothing. A shop girl, for God's sake. Anyway, I say, clenching my teeth in what I hope is an approximation of a smile. May I help you with something? May, I think, in the pause he leaves there. Flat, flat, flat. Maybe, he says, and for the first time he removes his hands from his pockets. And I don't think I could say, really, what it is that makes me realize that monsoon was an understatement, that this is about to be a tidal wave. I don't think I could say what I notice first, the fact that there's no wedding ring on his left hand, the corner of that thick paper he begins to pull from the inside of his jacket, the matte finish, the antique cream color I remember Avery stroking her thumb over, her smile close-lipped and pleased. The flash of color, colors I used on the final version, the vines and leaves, the iridescence of the wings I'd sketched. But I know, I know what he's come to ask. Maybe, I think, the word an echo and a premonition. He doesn't speak again until he's set the single sheet in front of me, his wedding program. I watch as his eyes trace briefly over the letters, and I know what he's seeing. I know what I left there. I know the way those letters worked on me. But I didn't think anyone else ever would. Then he looks up and meets my eyes again. Clear blue, a tidal wave when he speaks. Maybe you could tell me how you knew my marriage would fail. So despite working in letters and words, Meg doesn't always use her words to communicate honestly about her feelings. So she hides messages in her calligraphy. Reed is the only customer who has ever cracked the code. He's a Wall Street numbers genius who also struggles to express himself. Introverted, but in a different way. He feels he's never been gotten by anyone or seen by anyone, and neither has she. Meg begins to reach out to him out of guilt and invites him on her art inspiration gathering trips around New York City. His left brain is turned on by her right brain free spirit, and they both start to see that numbers and letters communicate all sorts of secret things to each other. The way this plot unfolds is the best part of its charm. There is no predicting where the couple and this story is going to go. But the tender way they navigate their emotions and learn to be friends, then lovers, is so endearing. Last week, I begin, I was really, 
I was trying so hard to hide, I guess. I was upset about this thing at work, and some things from my past it reminded me of. But instead of telling you that, I tried to distract you. I swallow. That's something I'm realizing I do too much. To keep me... I never meant for you to feel unprotected, Reed says, his eyes full of regret. I wouldn't ever want to make you feel that way. You punched a guy in the face for me last night, I say, my mouth curving into a teasing smile. I feel pretty protected. Reed ducks his head, his hair falling forward, skimming his stitched-up brow. I only wanted you to... Be honest, I finish for him. Say what I mean. His lips press together, which I take to mean agreement. I want to try that, I say, being honest, talking about the things that are difficult. When I hide them, they seem to come out in other ways anyway. He moves, his body turning on the bench so we're facing each other more. He looks between us, where my hands have been idly toying with the strap of my bag. And then he reaches out and takes one, pressing our palms together and linking our fingers, the same as he did last night. I close my eyes at the feel of it. He'll protect you. Okay, he says. It's a story very much like You've Got Mail, about seeing and being seen, about words and messages that are hidden, then become obvious to the right person, accepting that we're all made of emotional patterns, not bold signs with clear declarations. In both stories, when the characters finally feel safe enough with each other to be vulnerable, it's magic. Is there anything better in a romantic story than the forced declarations after the high emotion of a fight? The whole third act of You Got Mail is making up after the fight. When Meg and Reed have words, which is so unusual for them, Reed doesn't talk to her for a week, and he becomes so distressed and gets so drunk one night that the bartender calls her to come get him. And then he says this. Then I went out walking today, Reed says. I walked across the bridge. I walked all around Brooklyn, and I realized something. No, wait, I want to say. Wait, I realized something too. But God, it is so loud in here, and Reed is so close, and his voice sounds so good. I realized I'm not always honest with you. I lean back enough so I can look in his eyes. It doesn't sound like a good thing to say, this, I'm not always honest with you. But somehow, the way Reed says it, the letters take on a new meaning, as though if you drew them all out, you'd find something, something you'd actually want to see. But you, I say, my voice too quiet for this clamor, and Reed ducks his head, brings his ear closer to my lips so he can hear me. You always say what you mean. He leans back again, his eyes tracing over my face, my eyes, my nose, my mouth, 
Please forget I'm wearing Hello Kitty faces, I think. I don't. Because if I did... Somewhere down the bar a glass breaks and someone shouts an unintelligible expletive, but neither of us moves. I'm watching Reed's mouth in case I have to lip-read what he says next. If I did, I would say that last week I watched every video you've got on your website so I could hear the sound of your voice again. I would say that a woman stood next to me on the subway, and I think she used the same shampoo as you, and I could hardly breathe for how much I missed you. I would say that I walked around all day with a meg-shaped shadow beside me, and I only came in here because of the signs outside, and so I wouldn't call you up at nine o'clock on a Friday night and beg you to talk to me again. About Frisbee, the weather, the name for that piece of a letter you told me about. A spur, I whisper, because, holy shit, this is the best fight of my whole life. He nods, his face so serious. A spur, he repeats. Then he drops his eyes to the bar, to my card, and adds one more thing. I would say, I like you so much, Meg. And then... Right then, the real fight breaks out. Kate Claiborne writes characters that kind of remind me of J.D. Salinger. Quirky, intellectual, poignant, with layers and layers of meaning. Her latest book is Love at First, and it's equally beautiful with an equally gorgeous couple. But oh, read... You are my new book boyfriend. I hope you find me adorable, even though I flunked remedial algebra in college. Okay, here's me starting love lettering. Oh, shut down, uncommunicative men are so not my jam. Me at the end of the book. Why can't this man be real? If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll consider clicking share from your podcast app or following me or telling a romance-loving friend about it. Find show notes with links to what I've been babbling about at confessionsofaclosetromantic.com. Special shout out to my listeners in Mexico and South America. It's so nice to have your company. Until next time, wishing you a world full of shame-free romance.